Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 37 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm still ill. I'm not liking this. I'm not used to being ill for more than a few days. I don't like this. So you're going for the sympathy vote from the listeners because you didn't get any from me. <laughs> And uh, where, where is Maz today? Oh, in, in the house. We've got a new cat tree. So um, she, she's oh. abandoned me for the new cat tree. Fair enough. Have you covered it in catnip just to get it? To... No, both of the kids are out. So it's quiet inside. And it's just like, oh, okay, fine. Very good. Well, uh, we're not here to talk about John's cat. So uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that every week I collate a list of AWS news in my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I select a subset of those articles that we would like to talk to you about in a little bit more detail. So uh, we have such a list of articles for you this week. And the first one uh, was on InfoWorld last week. And it the title is AWS Releases Cloud Institute Virtual Program to Train Developers. So we do talk about AWS training from time to time. Uh, we're usually talking about what free training is available from AWS, but this one is definitely not free. Uh, the subtitle says uh, the one-year program, which consists of three courses a quarter, is priced at $7,650. So it's uh, right at the other end of the spectrum. It's actually quite expensive as far as AWS training goes. So why might an aspiring developer want to pay $7,650, do you think, John, um, for this cloud institute? Yeah, it's a funny one. Um, like boot camps and things are not new. This is obviously the first one of these we've seen from AWS. But paid for programming boot camps that typically focus on like web development technologies, just because they're in vogue, I think, um, are not uncommon. They're not. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Most of them are somewhere in between. Uh, the reason I think you want to pay for like a one year program is it's a similar sort of money, at least in the UK, as like a master's degree. I think they're about £10,000. So it's in that kind of ballpark sort of money. And it's a one-year, um, what does it say? It's 12, 12 courses over four quarters. And it's it's pretty intensive. So the idea being that if you've got both the funds to fund it and the funds to fund yourself whilst you're going through said course, it's going to be a much faster and more in-depth way of soaking up AWS knowledge. Because if you look at, say, the free training, they're 20 or 30 or 40 hours or whatever. And the idea is you get maybe one cert at the end of it, if you're lucky, but probably not. With this, it's foundational topics, it's cloud computing, it's networking, it's databases, it's storage, it's Python, it's machine learning, and so on and so on and so on. And of course, generative AI, because you have to today, don't you, I think. Um, but the idea being that much like a uh, traditional, much like a boot camp, it gives you a much broader grounding than the free training, which is covering kind of like one thing. Uh, so that's kind of why you'd want to do it. But it's not just the cost of the um, program because it's, you know, seven and a half grand plus tax. You've then also got to be able to live whilst you're doing this program. So odds are you can't do it around a full time job. Probably. I don't know. I mean, some people are mad and work 100 hours a week. So maybe you could do nights and do this in the day and sleep when you're dead. But most people are going to do this as their full time job, as it were. Mm -hmm. One thing that surprised me was that uh, after a year of study and uh, seven and a half grand investment, um, that uh, you come out of it with uh, only associate level, well, cloud practitioner associate level certs. 
um, you know, I would have thought after that intensive training that perhaps you might be ready to sit a um, pro or specialty level exam. I mean, maybe you are ready for it, but you could bear in mind is the pro and the specialties, the who are these four exams, um, you know, in the in the exam guidance, who are these four? It says people that have been working in the cloud or with this particular technology for two to five years, that's or two to three years possibly. And you won't have been if you've done that program, if that's all you've done, you'd be working with it for a year. So just literally the letter of the who is this for, it doesn't fit. So maybe that's it. And I mean, possibly someone that has a bit of experience in databases anyway might be ready to do the databases specialty afterwards maybe maybe not but also bear think... in mind the amount of um time it takes industry professionals to pass the pro exams like i was studying for six months i want to say on and off around doing it every day anyway you know they're not mm. easy yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I found interesting in this was that, uh, that they talk about aspiring developers as the uh, target market for this. Um, but uh, in the academy, they will actually design and develop a working application uh, that demonstrates their skills and ability to use AWS services and Python code. Um, so I guess that's uh, significantly more than one would typically achieve um, when studying for Cloud Practitioner and Solutions yeah. Architect Associate. Um, so, uh, you know, potentially this is going to be a very useful, uh, thing to show to prospective employers. Uh, and in fact, there are some partner organizations, if I recall from, uh, reading the, uh, the article. Um, so a couple well, of big GS GSIs. Partner organizations and things, don't they? If you look at the, um, oh, I forget the name of the exact program, but the, getting into like the the retraining well, restart it was restart that's all run by partner organizations so yeah you know, yeah don't tend to run these things themselves granted they probably provide a lot of materials for it but they don't tend to run them of course uh, as with lots of new initiatives it's only available in america initially mm -hmm. um so uh, you know um us europeans may have to wait a little bit longer uh, if we want to do the uh Cloud Institute virtual program, uh, or perhaps you can just uh, do it remotely um, because I don't think you need to attend in person. I think there are opportunities to attend in person. Um, but uh... yeah, it's a funny one. It is. I mean, all these things happen in the States first, but the way that they've kind of said, you know, your minimum requirements, as you say, aspiring developers based in the US who are at least 18 and have a high school diploma or equivalent degree, you know, a degree outside of America means something entirely different, um, but equivalent um, qualifications, if you like. So I think a high school diploma in the States is the same as as GCSEs or A-levels in this country. It's like it's not quite the – they don't line up particularly neatly. But it does seem to be a way of saying, well, rather than go and do a three- or a four-year degree, as they do in the States, because, again – college in the states is rather different to anywhere else rather than going and spending loads of money on on a on a college degree you can come and do this instead do it for a year you've paid a lot less money because you, you hear the stories coming out of the states of hundreds of thousands of dollars of people have spent on these things and then you can go and earn a buttload of money because you don't need a degree to work in the cloud you don't need a degree to work in development you don't need to be you know a computer science graduate if you can find an interviewer that's not going to ask you about i don't know algorithm modifications and tree sorting and all that sort of nonsense because how often do you actually do that 
you never because you're a salesman but with aws certifications uh, now the same number of aws certifications as you mm -hmm. previously i was able to claim more aws certifications than you but i let one lapse so uh, yeah <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. A salesman who has held more consecutive AWS certifications than you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let's uh, not turn this into a, uh, well, I can't, the, the word I was going to use there uh, is not appropriate um, for our YouTube no, channel. No, it's going to, it's uh, going to break the yeah. um, age appropriate <laughs> filter, isn't it? So uh, let's not, tr uh, let's not continue this one-upmanship uh, on the episode. <laughs> um but uh just to, to wrap that one up you know anything that uh, helps to address the skills shortage in the market is welcome in my opinion um and i think this definitely seems to go a little bit further than some of the other academy programs that i've seen uh you know where you come out with just certs you know having had that real world experience of developing a working app um is fantastic so uh, well done aws and uh, look forward to seeing the first uh, graduates from this program so uh, on to our next article this week, which is on the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog. And let's see if I can say this one uh, without uh, my teeth falling out. Identify AWS Systems Manager patch compliance status with AWS Cloud Trail Lake. Uh, I managed it. There we go. Uh, that is quite a wordy title. Um, but uh, Systems Manager patch compliance status is something we've actually been um, Identifying is an issue within our current customer base. Uh, so potentially this is an answer, if not the answer, uh, to uh, our patch compliance uh, mm. issue that we've been trying to resolve ourselves. Um, but uh, yeah, walk us through this one, John. Tell, tell us a bit more about it. So let's do a few definitions and hopefully I can avoid coughing um, whilst I talk about this one. So systems manager is, I've said this before, it's a loose collection of tools that allow you to manage your um what's the word i'm looking for manage your fleet of ec2s it's more designed for kind of large enterprise scale customers but absolutely everybody can and should be using it because it just makes your life a whole lot easier to have to get onto service to run commands and things it's great patch compliance so there's a part of systems manager called patch manager and it does it kind of exactly what it says on the tin using the systems manager agent which is installed on 95 percent of all ec2s these days and certainly on anything launched since about 2018 2017 something like that um apart from you know particularly weird amis you know common garden um you know windows ubuntu amazon Linux will have the agent pre-installed so it uses that agent to patch your servers brilliant we like that because it means that your servers are kept up to date with the latest patches be that security or application and you could configure all of this so that you could say i want it to wait for seven days and then apply everything that's been around for seven days because you don't necessarily want to apply it on day one because odds are if there's a bug in a software update it'll, it'll be found on day one or day two so if you wait kind of seven days then those bugs will have been fixed and it'll be fine to install usually minor caveat to that is ubuntu doesn't support it because ubuntu's repos are silly and don't supply build dates so that's rather annoying but that's by the by compliance status is whether or not your instances have outstanding patches because you can scan and install different schedules so your instance could become non-compliant because a new patch has been available and it's not been installed yet and these things tend to auto remediate you know they'll tend to clean themselves up if you've got your schedules kind of set up properly. However, 
the compliance status uh, GUI is only valid for right now. It's not giving you any kind of historical data, which is what I think this is kind of trying to solve. So the solution itself is hooking up CloudTrail Lake, which is it's a data lake for kind of log data, primarily CloudTrail. AWS Config, which is used to store the state and change of state for basically your entire AWS ecosystem. Um, they charge you based on, I think, number of items and, and how often they change and that kind of thing. But it will just kind of record the status of everything. So you've got 10 EC2s and they're in this status and they're on and they're off and you've got guard duty enabled and so on. It'll kind of track loads of things. And then systems manager to kind of do the patching itself and, and worry about that. And it's hooking all of those up and there's a, I think there's a, yeah, there's a couple of policies and things you need to do and it kind of walks you through doing all of that. The upshot of CloudTrail Lake is much like a number of the other kind of data store lake-esque um, solutions that AWS have got, is you can query it with SQL. So you don't have to go kind of trawling through logs and all the rest of it, because I just want to find the compliance status of this particular incident, uh, incident instance over time. You know, I want to know when it was and when it wasn't and when it remediated and all that kind of thing without having to go long form looking through loads of logs. So that's kind of where CloudTrail Lake is, is quite good. Quite why you have to use CloudTrail Lake, I don't actually know. Um, I suspect it's just the easiest thing to get it to play nicely with because um, logs are difficult generally. Um, but and then if you are running this, if you are kind of interested by this, and I'll certainly kind of play with this as well a bit more, uh, there is a, a thing to note that none of this is free. So Systems Manager is free. CloudTrail Lake is not free. It has uh, ingest costs and storage costs. So if you're just playing with this, do make sure you clean it up afterwards or you will end up with a bill that you didn't want. And uh, so is it just ingest costs or do you get charged when you're querying it as well? I don't think you're charged for query. It's ingest and storage. Mm. <clears throat> cool. Well, I'm glad to hear you're going to have a play with it because uh, mm. potentially uh, that is going to resolve uh, an it's issue. when I clear out a load of sprint these. work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Priorities. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's skip on to our next post then, uh, which is also on the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog. This one is about auto-remediating best practice deviations detected by AWS Trusted Advisor. Um so uh, Trusted Advisor, of course, uh, is uh, notifying you regularly of any uh, deviations from best practice. Uh, it's running a whole bunch of best practice checks against your AWS infrastructure. Uh, and this article goes on to talk about how you can potentially auto-remediate some of those. So uh, is that a good idea, do you think, John? In some cases, yeah. So Trusted Advisor recommendations are generally a bit kind of noddy if we're honest it's here's a thing we found yeah okay i know about that go away or here's a thing we found yes that's deliberate you know go away don't really care i don't like the i mean yes it's it's a, a blog article and they're trying to fill screen space and they're telling you how to do it but i don't like that this isn't a thing i can just turn on if i'm really honest because if you look at um i think it's inspector it might be one of those types of things possibly guard duty you can just go remediate push a button and it will go off and fix the problem for you because it'll be, you know, something that it's capable of fixing. And in this case, what you've got is trusted advisor finding a problem, sending an event bridge notification, 
to then a step function that you've set up and then a load of lambdas that um, kind of deal with that specific use case. So it's not auto remediating everything under the sun. It's auto remediating things that you think might come up regularly. And the example they've given here is exposed access keys, which uh, shouldn't happen, but it, it absolutely does and can. Um, so maybe that's something that you want to look at doing because it will go, oh, you've got your access keys exposed and then they'll be magically kind of blocked and deleted and sort of all the rest of it. But I don't understand why, if they can detect it, why can't they just solve that for me? Mm. I guess, yeah, what's the, uh, why would you not want to resolve your exposed access keys? Yeah, what I'd like is a notification, an email, a, a something that gets in my face that says, by the way, you've got access keys exposed. Would you like to go and get rid of those? I push a big button on the email that goes, yes, please. And it does it. Like, why do mm. I need to write all of this? Mm. Yeah, because I guess you've got to write the Lambda functions that it describes in the article. Yep. I mean, they, they supply the code and things for you, but you're still kind of doing all of this, as it were. Mm. When they've clearly done it, why can't they productize this? Yeah. I did wonder the same about the previous uh, thing, actually. But uh... I mean, yeah, AWS has a bit of a habit of this. They talk about taking away the undifferentiated heavy lifting and then writing a blog on a load of undifferentiated heavy lifting, and then you have to go and do it. And that, well, mm. You've clearly worked this out. So yeah. maybe it's an artifact of the two pizza teams, but the people writing these blog posts and what have you, maybe they are feeding it up to the uh, product teams, but these things are not being integrated into the products, and they should be. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps they're in a very long queue somewhere that, uh, you know, waiting to I be prioritized or voted on or however AWS uh, prioritizes these things. So can you think of any other examples that you might want to auto remediate? This this one talks about the exposed access keys, but what else might it tell you about that you might want to auto remediate? I mean, trusted advisor is a funny one because it gives you different recommendations. I think depending on your support contract. I think mm. I might be wrong about that, but I think it does. So it's it's um, well, the recommendations it's got is things like exposed access keys, which we've discussed, S3 bucket permissions, security groups with unrestricted access, those kinds of things. So those are the things that you probably want to handle. But I mean, we've had this before where you want your buckets all to be private. And you come into a new environment, maybe they're a customer, maybe. Um, Maybe you're a new engineer and you go, why are all of these public? Make them all private. And then stuff breaks because of historical reasons why they've been made public. And granted, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be serving assets through CloudFront, realistically. But, you know, historic reasons, people have done that because they knew that's how they knew it worked. And then you've broken things, which is why you don't always want to auto-remediate these things. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of support, um, that is a, one of the prerequisites for this solution, I noticed when I was reading it. So uh, the account, the trusted advisor must be enabled in the account, and the account must have business, enterprise, on-ramp, or enterprise support. So They're not cheap either. Hmm. So you can't use this unless you have one of those uh, business, enterprise, on-ramp, or enterprise and support. And I suppose maybe that makes sense, right? Maybe that makes sense because, not the trusted advisor piece, but in an account where you've got, for users having f exposed access keys you could probably handle that manually like it's mm. not terrible yes I'd, you'd, you'd want some sort of way of checking that that's happened but just force people to rotate them every so often and you kind of handle the problem in an organization of ten thousand people that's just non-viable mm -hmm. and they're likely uh, in that size of organization to have that sort of 
support plan across their entire organization. So, um, yeah, cool. Okay, well, let's let's move on uh, from the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog and back to a topic that we initially discussed last week, um, and that's about this Ofcom and Competition Markets Authority probe um, into the dominance of AWS and Microsoft in the cloud computing market. So uh, I think we spoke about it last on last week's episode. Certainly, it's been in previous newsletters. But the reason I picked out this article again this week um, is because this one actually dives into uh, some of the interventions um, that, uh, that that the Competition and Markets Authority could take against AWS and Microsoft uh, based on the uh, outcome of the the Ofcom report. So um, yeah, let's let's take a look at some of the things that they could do and talk about those. Uh, I think one of the first ones it mentions um, is uh, all about egress fees. So uh, we've definitely spoken about egress fees um, on the podcast before, um, but the article is talking about um, uh, the, the Competition and Markets Authority potentially prohibiting cloud providers from charging egress fees um, or... Uh, you know, changing the way in which they do that. So what, what are your thoughts on this one? Egress fees have always struck me as a bit naughty, to be honest, be that AWS or Google or Microsoft or whoever. So it always struck me as a bit naughty because there's no ingress fees for anything ever, as far as I'm aware, certainly in AWS. So the argument that you're charged based on the amount of data that you're moving through their hardware because of costs just kind of doesn't wash to me because if it costs nine cents a gigabyte i think that's the latest number to move data on the way out why doesn't it cost nine cents a gigabyte on the way in well because they want your data is why there's a business reason for them wanting your data and there's a business reason for them wanting to not let go of your data it's this kind of switching cost it's a, a sticking point as it were yeah, I think there is an element of it being to do with traffic profiles of a you know cloud provider or hosting company. So uh, generally, the size of the pipes that you need um, to transfer data in and out are determined by whichever is bigger in or out. And typically, in a cloud provider, uh, data going out is bigger than data going in mm. uh, because your hosting yeah, stuff, yeah, web requests, and people things. are accessing it and downloading data from your cloud. Um, so I think there's an element of that just to try and help justify it uh, somewhat. Yeah, but in that vein, then surely if you charge nine cents a gigabyte on the way in, you just won't pay very much because you're not sending a lot in. So mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't wash with me. The thing is, though, this is one of those we kind of accept it and take it on the chin because my concern with this, and I get this from Ofcom's perspective, I genuinely do, but my concern with this is if they ban them from charging egress fees or change how that works, those fees aren't going away. They're just going to get moved somewhere. So rather than nine cents a gigabyte egress, it will be, you know, four out and five in, something like that. Mm. Yeah. So, yes, granted, that will probably reduce the costs, but they're just going to move the numbers around. Mm. Rob from Peter to pay Paul. So uh, egress is one thing. What else did they talk about? Um... Interoperability, which again is a funny one because I'm a bit of a, a stickler for I don't believe in cloud lock-in. It's yes, 100% it's a thing, but if you're operating in a way that you're trying desperately to avoid it, you're missing the point. 
you, you're missing the point because if you're saying, well, we don't want locking, we're just going to use containers. Okay, fine. But EKS and AKS and GKE all work rather differently. Yes, they all run Kubernetes, but using the managed services, they work rather differently from each other and just kind of how control planes and things hang together. So in order to avoid that sort of lock-in, you then need to spin up VMs, okay, um, and then run your own Kubernetes control plane and then run all your own nodes and not take advantage of auto-scaling and a whole bunch of other things that you're kind of missing. And then anyway, all the different providers launch servers differently from each other. So it, it's kind of a self-perpetuating fallacy, as it were. By trying to avoid lock-in, you just spend more money. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then there was a the subject of committed spend discounts um, that they they also mentioned may need to be addressed. Um, do you think those are an issue? I mean, I mean, what are they saying? Because I I didn't see that bit, but I didn't read this particularly well. Um, so the article. I'm just reading the section now, but. Uh, Da, da, da. Where the issue of committed spend discounts is concerned, any interventions could have damaging implications for customers. Offcom acknowledges this is because where, while these setups do incentivize firms to use one form of cloud technology or another, the money customers save is important to them. But these schemes also provide some degree of investment certainty for suppliers. So I'm not really mm. sure. I, I, I guess they're, they're saying it's a, a form of lock-in. I suppose. Um, well, it is, but I mean fundamentally. Yes, these hyperscalers have got all the money in the world compared to most of their customers, but their accountants still like certainty. This is the mm. thing with finance people generally, and I think I said this in my talk a little while ago about serverless, is finance people don't always care what the number is. You know, it could be 10, it could be a 1,000, it could be a million. They don't really care. They want to know what it is ahead of time. That's mm. what they care about because then they can predict it, they can track it, they can do budgets against forecasts and forecasts against budget and all the rest of it. Um, so I don't particularly see that as a problem. Um, and honestly, I don't know what Ofcom are going to be able to do about that one anyway. Like, you must just lower all of your prices. Mm, they can't mm. They can't mandate that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? So, uh, you know, let's I mean, keep it's an going to rumble on. on for ages. And, and yeah, of course it is, not yeah. a lot will come of it, I think. Probably not, but uh, we shall see. But uh, there we are. Those are some of the potential interventions that... Uh, could be imposed on AWS and Microsoft as a result of this probe. So let's keep an eye on it as uh, as it does rumble on um, and see what ends up coming out of it, if anything. Um, but uh, on to our final article for this week. And, uh, of course, we couldn't have a blog, uh, a blog, a podcast episode <laughs> at the moment without talking about AI. Um, so let's talk specifically about one aspect of generative AI, which is Code Whisperer. Uh, and this is an article on IT Pro uh, asking the question about why AWS isn't adding new languages to Code Whisperer just yet. Um, so Code Whisperer currently supports 15 languages. Um, so uh, that's quite a lot anyway. Um, but uh, why is AWS not adding more languages to Code Whisperer? Well, I mean, the article spells this out in the second line, basically. It's uh, feature parity. So yep. as it currently stands, not all languages, all 15 of them, are equal within Code Whisperer. Things like Python and I think TypeScript are treated rather better than... Um, like Rust or, or other things that it supports because, I don't know, maybe there's less demand for it or maybe it was just easier to get things going or maybe there's a a greater corpus of, of material available to learn from, that kind of thing. So I suspect that's a part of it. But it's going to be feature parity. 
because you do not get the same experience between languages in Code Whisperer. You just don't. Like um, I've used it with Python. I've used it with TypeScript. And granted, it just annoys me. But um, the AWS on tour event said that I'm probably not the target market for it because I'm either quote using it wrong because I'm it's quite good at building test data. Okay, but I don't do a huge amount of that. Um, and it's quite good at doing the low impact stuff that you still need to do. Um, and when you've been working in a language for a while, when you've been a developer for a while, that's a lot less of a thing, as it were. You still have to do all of it, but you do it so quickly and so well that you just kind of smash it out and it's done. Whereas a newer developer is going to struggle with that kind of low impact stuff and it still needs to happen. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those... Because there's so many languages supports already, I think they want to get all of them up to kind of the same level before adding new things in. Yeah, it does mention at the end, and this is something we spoke about in our preamble, that uh, of the 15 programming languages that Code Whisperer can generate, initialization will only be available for Python, Java, and JavaScript. Um, Doug Seven stated in the immediate future, the service will also extend to TypeScript and C Sharp. Mm. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, uh, getting initialization for all 15 languages prior to adding new languages will be important. Um, and uh, I did notice that the uh, product manager here, his name is Doug Seven. I was wondering, is, is that his name or are there just lots of dogs in his team? Is there a Doug Seven? <laughs> eight? Um, probably shouldn't have said that out loud, though, should I? But uh, apologies, no, I Doug, think that if was you're listening. But, uh... <laughs> I think so anything else? Thought. Anything else to say on that one, John? Or have I thrown you there with my? Uh... Um, I mean, I'm I understand the logic behind this. I do. I'm a little bit annoyed though because what I really want Code Whisperer to start supporting is Terraform and CloudFormation because the mm. amount of boilerplate in those things that it can just automate away for you would be amazing. Well, you know who to speak to, Doug Seven. Look him up. See if he's on the Community Builder Slack and give him your feedback. Um, I know just before we uh, wrap up that uh, you were a little bit kind of lukewarm on Code Whisperer, but after the um, after the, the AWS on tour event, I think you were slightly warmer. How are you feeling about it now? Tiny bit, tiny bit. Um, because what the article... Maker. What the article does say is that uh, it's progressing so rapidly at the moment that if you looked at it a couple of weeks ago, that it probably looks very different now than it did a couple of weeks ago. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's I don't do – I'm an engineer. right? I'm not a developer day-to-day, -day, so it's, it's less useful to me. The issue I had with it was I found it either wrong quite a lot. Um, in one case, it suggested a stub function back to me that I'd written so I could lay the, the script out right and I'd put a little stub in the system, you know, this is going to do this. And then I asked it to write the thing because all it was doing was talking off to a service and it should have been able to do that. And it just gave me my stub back and I was very unimpressed by that. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is I found it kind of quite pushy and maybe that's just the way that it's integrated with the IDE, but it was like constantly getting in the way. So, Yeah, I think the article talks to that actually, that it's uh, um, now making less suggestions than it, than it did. Mm. Um, so uh, perhaps that feedback has been taken on board and uh, it's making fewer higher quality suggestions so maybe it's time for you to uh, to take a look at it again and, and let it whisper a few more lines of code in your ear 
<laughs> that's a disturbing thought absolutely uh, but on that note uh, we have reached the end of our time for this week so uh, thank you for listening if you've made it this far that was season two episode 37 of logicast john and i will be back next week with another episode of logicast for you in the meantime if you enjoyed it tell your friends you can download us uh, from wherever you get your podcasts uh, so we'll be back again next week see you again next time